That's Advent. And if darkness creates the conditions for confusion, pain, and self-destruction, then the cold light of day reveals all that has been wrought in darkness and shows them unsparingly. We wait for the dawn with mixed feelings and apprehension in every sense of the word. The cold light of God's law, our diagnosis. The warmth of God's mercy, our cure. And you cannot have the latter. You cannot have the latter without the former. Without law, there is no such thing as mercy, as grace. Listen to the invitation that we will all hear to the very terse Kyrie confession. Confession, after all, is the great privilege of the redeemed. To ask forgiveness and know that someone is hearing you and ready to grant it. And Advent takes us further back than this. This is a confession which throws priest and people together at the foot of the throne of grace. This is one of those confessions where the priest with the people asks for God's absolution and pronounces it collectively. When the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. The purposes of the heart. It's time to bring back my favorite quote from Cramner, and he, after all, got it from Melanchthon. It's a kind of order of salvation or how we work within our souls to apprehend what God is doing and what God desires. This is Melanchthon via Cramner. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Repeat it one more time. What the heart desires, the will chooses. The mind runs along afterwards and just makes it fit somehow. So we pray as those who walk in darkness that God will reveal what it is we desire, not we th- what we think, what it is that is running and ruining our lives. That he will reveal the desires of our hearts. We fear it, and yet we pray for the diagnosis that can only come when those desires have been brought into the light. We look at the visible symptoms, at what the light has revealed, and what is seen by that cold light feeds the attempt to determine an invisible cause. We project back into the dark, deceitful human heart. If you have heard me week after week uh, giving out exhortations to go out and do good, work in a food bank, volunteer in a prison ministry, visit the sick, etc., etc., etc. Now you are going to hear and to discover that I know what you have already discovered, that it is not so easy as a simple exhortation, an earnest entreaty, a stirring of the will. It is never so easy. What the heart desires, after all, the will chooses, not what the mind tells the will would be good for it. To enable the will, it is the heart that must be stirred, that must be strangely warmed. And if you stir the human heart, you're going to stir up a great deal more than you have asked and imagined. You're going to awaken a beast, a beast of prey. If you try to pry that which the heart desires from its grasp, the grasp of this beast, you are in for a fight. And you are going to discover the depths of human dependency on that which is not God, 
addictive behaviors of all kinds find their sources in the human need to find a God anywhere else but in God. Sanctification, then, is no mere matter of telling the mind what to do to make good choices. The mind will only justify what the heart wants. You can do this for a time, but it's the law of diminishing returns. The heart will always win. So when you stir the heart, you had best be watching, be awake, and be ready for anything. Advent, then. Something is coming out of the darkness, out of the depths. Something is coming out of the light, out of the heavens. Those two things have not yet met. It's not here yet. It is on the way. How far away? We don't know. We don't know the time when these worlds will come together. We are told, be vigilant. What is coming? Well, this much we suspect. Violence. The wrath of God. Jesus opens the door to that wide. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. The end of the world, if you like, as we know it. Despite the cosmic imagery, interestingly, the tribulation to which Jesus refers is not God's doing at least not directly God's doing. Rather, it is the sure sign of God's undoing, of the release, the loosing, the throwing off of the last restraints that God has put on the unruly wills of sinful humanity, the deliverance, the handing over of that humanity to that which their hearts desire, to the remorselessly predictable sources of human misery hidden in the recesses of the heart. The wrath of God here is the suffering that we have when we are free, not just to will, but to do, to inflict on ourselves and each other. And we are helpless. Our wills are now unbound to do otherwise. The violence that causes us to sacrifice one another in the pursuit of our own peace of mind and our uneasy truce with the powers, the unseen powers that rule this world. That is the night that is darkest before the dawn. We wait for a way out of this darkness. We wait for the dawn. We who sit in darkness wait for the great light that we have not seen. We wait for God's intervention. We wait for God to reveal himself, show his hand, make himself presence. What we fear the most is not God, but more darkness. The night that doesn't end the night in which God at last releases us to our own devices, gives us the free wills we so crave, the absent God. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. It's so bad that the prophet is actually begging God to come. He is not trying to get rid of him, even though this is a God of power and vengeance and judgment. Come what may, come, Lord, he cries, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. Always them out there, but he knows the depths of his own heart, too, that the world, your world, might know that you are there, that you are even. There is no one who calls upon your name, the prophet says, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us 
and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. You have left us, abandoned us, released us to the unchecked pursuit of our own selfish desires, and it is those that shall do us in. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? This is the worst possible situation, not to be delivered up to God's wrath, but to be delivered up to our own. Behold, please look, we are all your people. There is an innocence here. We are offering ourselves to this unknown God. What we don't know in this case kills us, the depth of our own depravity. We are the clay, and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand, wishful thinking. We are murderous, red in tooth and claw, with not even the self-knowledge to know this. Jesus will have to come to show us who we are and of what we are capable. But we, our own murderous hearts, project onto God. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Indeed, we are not, and that is the problem. The depth of our sin, our radical self-centeredness, and our willingness to sacrifice, that is the word sacrifice, any and all to our own self-satisfaction, our own self-fulfillment, this self-obsession. It's what makes us not at all like clay, moist and pliable, but like dust in his hands. We are like dust in his hands. He has nothing to work with in us. Dust we were, and to dust we shall return. But to be what we may become in Christ, we have first to see what has become of us in sin. This Jesus alone makes possible. The world is full, brothers and sisters, of people out there feeding the hungry, visiting the prisoners, taking care of the sick who do not know Jesus and who have no desire to know Jesus. And they are doing these things, may I say, by and large, better than all the rest of us put together. If this is all it is, to which Jesus has called us, it's already being done. Why on earth do we need Jesus? The innocence that precedes conversion, therefore, is an innocence without innocence, an insensitivity, perhaps, to the causal relation between those things that permit God to be present to us in grace and those things that confront us with God's presence in disgrace. We need God's law to show us the darkness of our hearts before we can be of any use to him. The things that shine the light of dawn right back upon us. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We have become completely unmoored loosed, torn out of any rootedness we have in God, free for the winds of desire to blow us to and fro. But we refuse to see any of this. Oddly enough, it is only the soul that is on the way to salvation that will come up with something like this, that's looking for a diagnosis, that's looking for a cure, 
where the world sees no problem at all. The soul that is on the way from sickness to health, from the slavery of its own free will, a will cut loose to thrash around and fasten itself to anything the heart desires, to the freedom of a heart and will and mind bound now to Christ. To he alone is whose service is perfect freedom. We were not made to be free. We were made to owe our obedience to someone. As the great Saint Bob Dylan said, <laughs> someone will be our master. And if it's not the prince of this world, let it be Jesus. And so a new day dawns, cool and gray. And shall we be saved? Always the same question. And shall we be saved? Yes. And we are being saved even now. Brothers and sisters, I'm all for being told the law and doing the law whether I want to or not because I got the idea in my head it's better than a lot of the alternatives. And I'm all for having my will stirred to having someone come and exhort me using guilt and fear as any exhortation of that kind must to do what I don't want to do and follow God's law. But deep down, brothers and sisters, what we're all in this for is to have the gracious God of the universe reach in and touch our hearts and change the desires of our hearts so that what God in Jesus wants is what we want too. And when that happens, all these other conflicts disappear. Now may I say, being brought again and again to this point where I have to ask God to change the desires of my hearts, that this is no easy place to be. If anyone has been there, it has to be Wesley, who comes to that place now, a vacant lot on Aldersgate Street, and here's the reading of Luther, strangely enough, and finds that his heart is strangely warmed. Not that his will is stirred up, that his heart is strangely warmed. He begins to want for himself and for this world what God wants. And he will take the diagnosis and he will accept that if he asks this of God, He'd better be ready for God to deliver it, for God to hound him down and harass him and encourage him and cajole him and hound him and be with him until that process of transformation grows and grows and grows. And that process requires a willingness every morning to let the cold gray light of God's law reach into our hearts, diagnose, identify all those things which our desires are bidding us clutch onto, which we do not want to give up, encouraging us, encouraging us to loosen the grip once more and take the hand of the gentle Lord who promises life, 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 new life,
truth and a new way forward for us all. Only when the diagnosis at last is given, showing to us all in his death on the cross that of which we are capable, then, only then, will come the grace, the radiance of Jesus' life, the warmth of his light shining into our lives, and not just showing us, pointing to something, but here filling our hearts to overflowing with the love of that which he loved, with the love and then the will to act. Amen.